All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, in this section of verses today, verses 21 through 28, uh, we'll consider death and Satan. So it should be a pleasant morning for everyone. <laughs> death and Satan this morning. Uh, you see, Christians have a complicated relationship, I'd say particularly with death. Uh, and those of you who are students of your Bible know that. There, there's sort of a complicated relationship that Christians have with death. On the one hand, we affirm with the Apostle Paul that death is an enemy to be vanquished by Christ, and it entered as a curse as a result of the fall. On the one hand, we have that relationship with death. We affirm that with the Apostle Paul. On the other hand, we affirm with the same Apostle that, quote, to die is gain. And that the life that Christ has given us demands the death of whatever is earthly in us. It's an interesting and complicated relationship that we have with death. For the Christian, there's a sense in which death is an enemy, and there's a sense in which death is a most welcome friend. So again, it's a complicated relationship that we have with death, and that complication will be seen by us this morning in our text, as the Apostle Peter wrestles with how to integrate a positive view of death into his developing Christian worldview as Jesus builds on Old Testament themes to help him see that there is a positive spin that the Lord has placed upon death, particularly in the life of, of the believer. So Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in, glory, in the glory of the Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now we can see Peter's difficulty here, can't we? It should be clear why Peter is struggling as mightily as he is. He's just identified Jesus, per last week's text, as the anointed one. The anointed one. The Christ. The Messiah. All three ways of saying the exact same thing. And as we covered last week, the anointed one refers to kings, refers to priests, refers to prophets, all of whom were anointed in the Old Testament and were offices that were commissioned by and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. So all of those offices and office holders were types that were pointing forward to the ultimate one, the anointed one, the Lord Jesus himself. And, and Peter has just rightly identified, you're the one who can do for your people what all of those other anointed ones failed to do. 
You're the one who can bring in the real and lasting kingdom. You're the one who can be a priest who truly satisfies and gives the people what they need. You're the prophet who not only has the word of God, but is himself the word of God enfleshed. Peter's made this identification. You're the anointed one. We also saw last week that Jesus identifies himself as Daniel chapter 7's son of man, the dominion taking, the nation subduing one who would reign forever, whose reign never ends. And so you can see the quandary that Peter would be experiencing when Jesus finishes that moment and then goes into the next moment, which is, by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. Peter's thinking, I don't have room for that in what you just told me. I I don't understand how the Daniel 7 conquering son of man whose reign will never end, how the anointed one who's going to be all that we need him to be, that everybody else has failed to be, part of which because they died, even the best of them at some point died, and then somebody who wasn't as good as them had to take their place, meaning that death was part of the problem with all of the other anointed ones. And here's the guy who's supposed to be better than all of that. And what's he, ju- what's he just said? Well, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. A- and Peter's saying, I don't have room for that in my theology. <laughs> I-, I don't understand what you're saying. And then to make matters worse, Jesus follows up the discourse about his own death and his own suffering by saying that anyone, in fact, who wants to follow him must also embrace suffering and death. <laughs> Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What do you do on crosses? You die. You die. Now, Peter's thinking, Jesus, I've read Torah. Death is bad. (laughs) I've read Torah. Death is bad. Yahweh said in Deuteronomy today, I set before you life and death. And it's pretty obvious from the context that Yahweh was hoping the children of Israel would choose life. Because death is bad, right? He's thinking, uh, I'm thinking about Jonah. We've taught some about Jonah and the sign of Jonah, so there's some fresh context there. Jonah's disobedience took him down to Sheol, meaning he died. That's the place of death. That means that disobedience equaled death, right? It's one of the things that Jonah teaches us. Disobedience equals death. In other words, death, bad, When Israel disobeys Yahweh for sustained periods of time in the Old Testament, what does she do except go into spiritual death, that being the death of exile? And what is the spiritual death of exile precipitated by except the physical death associated with being conquered by an enemy nation? Death equal bad. Any way you slice it, it's judgment, it's a curse, it's an enemy. And so you you can get why Peter, being even biblically literate as he is, is thinking... Uh, death is bad. So why is the guy, the anointed one, the conqueror of nations, the dominion-taking son of man, what business does he have suffering and dying? He, he's struggling to understand the Christian's complicated relationship with death. We're watching that wrestle unfold in Peter's own experience with the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16. Peter thought one-dimensionally about death, and he missed the ways that both the Old Testament scriptures and creation itself actually bear witness to a goodness and necessity that is bound up in death as part of God's design. 
We're fond of saying that death is the result of the fall, and of course, in in a limited way, in a narrow theological way, that's certainly accurate. But Jesus himself is going to maybe throw a wrench in a broad application of that thinking when he himself says in John chapter 12, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies, then it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying that creation itself teaches us about a goodness and necessity that is bound up in death as designed by God himself. So here's the question for you to think about as we consider these things. Was seed death necessary for plant life prior to the fall? This is a brain teaser. Was seeds dying necessary for plants living prior to the fall? I think in some ways to ask the question is to answer it. Yeah, that's how God designed it, which is why Jesus appeals to it as just a creational fact that teaches us an immaterial or metaphysical truth. Or how about seasons? Is the beauty of fall leaves, which is the leaves dying, is the beauty of that something that is just a post-fall occurrence? Or were seasons and the death that they necessitate something that God baked into creation? Again, you wouldn't find a shred of biblical evidence to suggest that God just rewired all of those things in order to... Okay, so here's the fall of man. I'm going to punish you by making those leaves so pretty. (laughs) Aha! You see, God built the beauty and necessity of death right into creation. Right into creation. Now, were we meant to die spiritually and be severed from relationship with our Maker? Certainly not. But was death and resurrection already a rhythm that was present in creation before the fall? Most certainly it was. Most certainly it was. That death of a kind and resurrection of a kind were things that we see even beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Peter's problem is the same of our is the same as ours. He's so overwhelmed by the prospect of death and its displeasure that he can't see through it to the glory of resurrection. He's so overcome by the discomfort and the displeasure associated with death that he can't see through to any glory that may lay beyond it. He's fixated on the darkness of death and he can't see the light of resurrection. And we can see his blindness to this fact because Jesus said four things very clearly in verse 21, and Peter doesn't pick up but three of those four things. Jesus says these four things in verse 21. He says that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die, and then what's the last thing he says? He must rise. He must rise. And and those who are reading this in original languages will tell you that the must in verse 21, does follow each of those four things. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise. Peter heard and processed three of those four things and entirely skated over or failed to process the most important of those four things, namely the resurrection that is on the other side of the death. 
Peter's saying, yeah, he must go to Jerusalem where there's a large concentration of powerful people who oppose him. <laughs> I filed that away. I heard you. I think that's a bad idea. Sounds like death. He heard the part where Jesus said that he must suffer at the hands of those powerful people. He's like, yeah, I processed that quite well. I think it's a bad idea. You ought not go. He heard the part where Jesus said he must die. Yeah, I think it's probably a better idea that you live. Processed all of that. What did he fail to integrate into his thinking entirely? Resurrection. Resurrection. Peter caught all of the negatives and somehow manages to overlook the glory to which all of those negatives are building up. We have any pessimists in the room? <laughs> yeah. Really good at identifying death. Really bad at seeing how the Lord may be planning to resurrect those things. <laughs> now, the kind of death that the fall brought with it is the kind of death that carries no resurrection. That's the kind of death that enters the world at the fall, the kind of death that carries no resurrection. The death of the fall is the kind of death that only perpetuates more death. But as Jesus teaches in John chapter 12, there is in God's good design a variety of death that brings life with it, hence the seed, which must die in order to produce fruit. That's the kind of death that Jesus died, and that's the kind of death that Jesus invites you and I into. Actually, it's stronger than that. Jesus isn't just inviting his followers into that. What's he doing? He's demanding it, isn't he? He says, if anyone would follow me, what have you got to do? You got to die. You got to die. So Jesus' grand plan is to die like a seed so that he might rise a fruitful tree that gives life to the world. That's his plan. Die so that he can rise in a way that blesses the world. And then he says that you and I are to join him in that dying and in that rising. But Peter opposes him. Peter opposes him. And because Peter opposes him, what does Jesus call him? Satan. <laughs> Satan. Now, to be clear, I don't take Jesus to be saying that Peter is demonic here necessarily. I don't take him to be saying that Jesus or that, that Peter is, is demon-possessed. I take him to be using the term Satan pretty generally rather than technically or properly. You see, Satan is a pretty common Hebrew word that means adversary, and it's used all over the Bible in that very generic way. It's meaning adversary. When we hear Satan, we immediately think of the superhuman adversary of God, but there's a, a broader and more common usage of the term that, again, just refers to an adversary, an, an enemy. And I want to give you some examples of that. Numbers chapter 22 is the first occurrence of the word Satan in all of biblical revelation. And I want you to note how it's used. Here's what it says. And God came to Balaam at night, and he said to him, if, if the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey, and he went with the prince of Moab. So, so this is, God said, hey, wait for a group of men to call you, and then you can go with him. But what does Balaam do? He gets up, and without the men calling him, he gets up, saddles his donkey, and is of his own accord goes. So what happens? Verse 22, here's our verse. God was angry. And he sent the angel of the Lord who took his stand in the way as Balaam's Satan. 
Now, your English version won't say that. It'll say adversary. But look at a lexicon. It's the word Satan. All right. Some other examples, there are many that we could stack up. I won't read these other ones, but I'll just summarize them for you. In 1 Samuel 29, verses 3 through 4, David is called the Satan of the Philistines, the adversary of the Philistines. In 1 Kings 5, 3 through 5, Solomon says that because there are no Satans opposing Israel, because there are no adversaries rising up against Israel, he can build the temple. He says, my father David, he was fighting too many wars. There were too many Satans that he was tangled up with. He couldn't build the temple, too much blood on his hands. There are no Satans now, therefore I can build the temple. That work then ends up being somewhat uh, stifled, somewhat stymied, or at least there's a shadow cast over it because in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 through 14, the Lord does in fact raise up a Satan against Solomon because of his sins. And that Satan has a name, Hadad the Edomite, who begins to antagonize and come against the people of Israel. Same chapter, a few verses down, the Lord raises up another Satan against Solomon named Rezin. I'm telling you this so that you'll know that in Numbers chapter 22, Satan is the angel of the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 29, David is Satan. In 1 Kings chapter 5, the nations around Israel being at peace means that there is no Satan. And in 1 Kings 11, Hadad and Rezin are two men with armies who are antagonistic toward Israel, and they are Satan. And I could stack up example after example after example to show you that that's the most common way that that word is used. That's not to discount or deny or denigrate our doctrine of Satan as we all think of him. It's just to say that there is another way of using that word, and I believe that's the way that the word is being used here when Jesus calls Peter Satan. Because the alternative is to say that in one breath, Peter is the one who's blessed of God, who's just had the Spirit so near to him that it was revealed to him that he's the Christ, and then two minutes later, he's demon-possessed. <laughs> I don't think that that's what's happening in the text. I think that what Jesus is doing is he's using this word in its more generic and, in fact, more common biblical usage. He's simply identifying the fact that Peter is standing in opposition to God's plan, and he need not do that. That in this instance, Peter has set himself up as an adversary to Christ. You see, for Jesus, anyone who stands between you and the death that you're meant to die is a Satan to you. That's where you start to connect these dots, maybe devotionally. For Jesus, anyone who stands between you and the death that you're meant to die is your adversary. And if it isn't already obvious that I'm using the word death here metaphorically, I'm using the word death metaphorically. <laughs> Just want to make sure that's super clear. So two things to take away at this point. One, don't avoid the death that God has called you to die. Because then you are your own Satan. Right? When Jesus is calling you, bidding you, the Holy Spirit is pressing you toward a death of a kind. We'll talk about some specific examples of, of what that death might look like in short order. But do not avoid the death that has called you to die, or you've become the Satan in your own life. Second, anyone in your life who encourages you not to die the death that God has called you to die is also a Satan to you. They have set themselves up as your adversary. 
Now, we live in a culture that wants to keep deadly things in good health and wants to kill all of the things that bring life, don't we? Uh, We live in that sense in, I would say, both a generic and specific way, a satanic culture. We live in a satanic culture, again, in both senses of that word. Our culture says, let's keep autonomy alive even though it kills community, (laughs) right? let's, Let's keep the autonomy going at the expense of real biblical community. Our culture says, let's keep sexual immorality alive, let's kill family, right? Let's keep our sexual immorality, we'll let it kill family. Keep the welfare state, kill responsibility, right? Keep the entertainment industry as it exists, kill purity. Let's keep all of those things alive despite the fact that they kill the most meaningful things. And in these things, you gain the world and lose your soul. Now, to zoom in on an example, for instance, in sexual immorality, you get sex, but you cut yourself off from those wonderful things that sex is supposed to give you, right? So you have the thing itself, but you don't have all of the fruit that it's supposed to bring with it. One of those things being, obviously, children. In fact, in our society, we're obsessed with lifeless sex, aren't we? Our society is absolutely obsessed with lifeless sex. That is, sex that doesn't produce anything beyond the pleasure of the moment. It's not building a lasting relationship that's intended to endure and bless generations and provide a stable household. It's not producing children. It produces nothing. That's the kind of sex, it's lifeless, that we are obsessed with, either because It's being watched on a screen or because we chose to stifle its effects through contraception or whatever it may be. We want lifeless sex. And here's why we're so obsessed with lifeless sex. Follow me here. It's because we don't want to die. Realize this may sound like some abstraction, but these are important dots to connect. Why are we so obsessed with lifeless sex? It's because we don't want to die. Do you know what I mean by that? If you do sex God's way in a marriage aimed at procreation, then you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to die in a thousand ways, pouring your life out to care for, sustain, and maintain the life that the sex is supposed to make. Right? Because real life always in God's world, real life always requires our death. That's how it works. It's not just the seed that dies in order to give and maintain real life. Real life is always associated with death of a kind. That's why we're obsessed with the lifeless version of sex, because we don't have to die in order to continue having it. But you do it God's way. And every parent in here knows, every person who's been married for longer than five minutes knows, the other kind, it will take from you. It'll take from you. But we want pleasure without the pain. We want the score without the sacrifice. And that's exactly what Peter tries to talk Jesus into, isn't it? He says, Jesus, why don't you just take the crown without the cross? That's what he's saying. That's Peter's suggestion. Why don't you just have the crown without the cross? 
And at this point, there is certainly overlap with the figure that we commonly refer to as Satan, because he's always offering the same thing, isn't he? Here's all of the pleasure. Here's all of the allure. In fact, this is how the Satan, if you will, despite the fact that Heiser would say I can't say that, here's the way that the Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, isn't it? He says, here are all the kingdoms of man. Just bow down to me, which is quick and painless, and I'll give them to you. Because Satan knows what's the other means of Jesus acquiring that which he is to inherit. Well, the same way he just told the disciples. You die, and then you rise, and then you get a crown. And so Satan says, what if you skip that? What if you skip the suffering What if you skip going to Jerusalem? What if you skip the pain? What if you skip the mockery? What if you skip all of those ways that you're going to die? And we can just short-circuit that. Here's the crown, no cross. Here's happiness, life, vitality, and joy without sacrifice, without self-denial, and without sanctification. That's what Satan is always offering, and that's precisely what Peter gets caught up in and suggests that as a very good idea to commend to Jesus. Hence, get behind me, Satan. Now listen, Jesus calls his followers to die. That's clear in our text, isn't it? And again, we take him to be speaking metaphorically, meaning that he's talking about aspects of our personhood that need to be put to death if we're going to rightly follow him. If anybody's going to follow me, what's got to happen? You've got to die. Well, what's he mean? You can't follow him if you're dead. So he's probably not talking about, like, physical death, right? He's probably talking about something else. He's probably speaking metaphorically. He's saying, if you're going to follow me, walk in my way, then there are some aspects of who you are that cannot come with you. They've got to die. You've got to die. So Jesus clearly, in our text, calls his followers to die. But what we think about, I think, less is the fact that he also orchestrates our deaths. He also orchestrates our deaths. He calls you to it, and then he puts you in situations that kill you. (laughs) You see, often, though, we're like Peter in that we can't see or feel past the death part. We get so laser-focused on that... And we're not thinking about a resurrection on the other side. So what do we do except eschew, avoid, and run from all of the ways and situations that Jesus has planned for us to die? We try to escape from them like the plague. One of the ways that we try to do that is divorce. Sometimes couples will call me, their marriage is going horribly, horribly wrong. Things are toxic. There's friction. There's tension. They're like, man, it feels like I'm dying. I'm like, maybe you're supposed to. What if a tremendous number of the things from which we are running are precisely the things that the Lord has brought into your life to kill the things in you that need to die? Is that possible? Is that possible? Sometimes it's a teenager who's talking to me about their suffocating and oppressive parents. Pastor, you won't believe things that they've taken from me, the ways that they want to try to control my life. Feels like I'm dying over here. What if you're supposed to? What if those are all the ways that you're supposed to die? Sometimes it's just family life in general. (laughs) 
Husbands, we've all been in the situation where we cross the threshold of the door and we can see on our wife's face that uh, she's close to the point of some kind of death. <laughs> As the children have taken and taken and taken and taken and taken. <laughs> she's like, I'm at the end of what I have to give, which is just another way of saying, there's something in me that's dying. <laughs> And look, I'm not saying don't be helpful, don't relieve your wife, I'm not, don't, don't take this as an application point, okay? But what I am saying is that our wives should be able to also get to the point where they say, what if this is precisely the way that I was meant to die this Tuesday? That was precisely the way that I was meant to die this Tuesday. What if those things, what if those challenges, what if those struggles, what if those things in us that we're trying to get away of, that we're trying to self-care our way out of, that we think, maybe if I read a book that will make me do this better, then I can avoid these pangs. It's like, what if the reason that you've read so many of those self-help books trying to figure out how to get around those things, what if the reason they still won't go away is because Jesus put them there himself? Is that possible? Maybe that's why despite all of the books on the shelf at Lifeway that are telling you how to have a speed bump free X, Y, or Z by following steps A, B, and C never worked is because the Holy Spirit said, no, we're killing something today. <laughs> that's going nowhere. Because you've got to die. Is that possible? That we've been looking at struggle, challenge, hardship, speed bumps, contention in relationships. Is potential, is, is it possible that we've been looking at all of these things the wrong way? Because I want to say if Jesus has called us to die, he's also going to orchestrate our deaths. Because he knows something about you and me. Namely, that we don't want to die. So what's the likelihood that we walk into those situations intentionally. <laughs> Pretty low. And so this should do something to even the intimacy that we feel with the Lord when you're in the middle of those moments that feel like they are taking from you to the point of some kind or another of death. <laughs> Maybe the Lord is most near to me, in fact, now. <laughs> Maybe he planned this moment. But what is it that you're trying to kill, Lord? Is there a selfishness that's at work in me and this challenge is intended to shine a light on and uproot that? Is that what's happening right now? Is there, is there an arrogance in me and this complication about which I do not know what to do has entered my life to shine a light on and uproot some of that? I think it's likely because God has orchestrated a life for us that is full of murders. Murders of our flesh, murders of our sinful nature, murders of our pride, murders of our self-aggrandizing spirit that wants to be seen as wonderful and self-sufficient and powerful and strong. And so he's constantly putting us in situations where the reality of us is exposed because he wants to kill all of that other stuff. It's happening all the time. And so what's our job in those moments? Our job is not to be Satan. <laughs> Our job is not to oppose that plan, but to embrace that death, to deny ourselves, and to follow Christ, knowing that He will raise us up into someone far more glorious than the jerk that He's killing. That's the hope. That's the light on the other side of all of those deaths that He is constantly bidding us to die. And I'll say this, 
in closing. This also adds a layer of meaning to last week's message where we identified the church as the military arm of Christ's kingdom. Because we didn't, we didn't really explicitly answer the question, if we're the armed forces pushing forward the kingdom, how does the advance occur? Like, what is the run-of-the-mill soldier in the army of Christ supposed to be doing? Well, this text gives an answer to the question. And remember, it's all in the same context. The gates of hell won't stand against the church that I'm building. How are you building the church, Jesus? How are you going to do it? I'm going to die. And you are too. That's how. That's how. So what's the primary means of kingdom advancement in which you and I engage? We advance in kingdom building the same way that Christ did, namely by dying in all of the ways that we need to die, which may mean embracing some of the very things that we've been keeping at arm's length because we don't want to die. I don't want to have that conversation that I know I should probably have with that friend who I know is living in sin because that could... It could crush me in some ways. I don't want to do that. Maybe you're meant to be crushed in that way. Maybe they're meant to be crushed in the way that your words will crush them. You know the examples. I don't have to spend an extra five minutes giving you creative applications. You know. What are the steps of obedience in your household, in your personal life, in your professional life, what are the crosses that you've been routinely walking by because you simply don't want to die? Identify them. And this week, it's time to get on one. Say, Lord Jesus, I trust you, I follow you, and I know what's on the other side of a cross because you went first and you showed me. And what's on the other side of that cross is a glorious transfiguration, a glorious resurrection, not just that you come back in the same way and the same kind of person, but that you're more glorious than you will ever be if you continue to walk by the cross that you're meant to die on. So with that, let's ask the Lord to show us what those things are and to give us the strength and the courage to get on the crosses that we need to get on this week.